The following message was recorded at Fountain of Life Fellowship in Fountain Valley, California. For more information, visit www.folfcrc.com. Good morning, Fountain of Life. As always, it's an honor to have this moment together to sit under God's Word. Uh, we're going to continue our study through the book of Revelation. And this morning, we're looking at an incredible story, our story really, as seen from God's perspective in chapter 12. So we're going to look at the entire chapter this morning. We'll be doing Revelation chapter 12, verse 1, all the way to verse 17. Again, that's Revelation chapter 12, verse 1, all the way to 17. Let's hear God's word. And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, and with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven, and behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne, and the woman fled into the wilderness, where she has a place prepared by God, in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days." Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come, for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God, and they have conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them, but woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows that his time is short. And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness, to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and half a time. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with the flood. But the earth came to the help of the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for speaking to us. We thank you for giving us this picture of your perspective towards your people and the story you're writing for them. Lord, we pray that you would help us to understand this passage clearly, help me to teach it, 
clearly and faithfully, and we pray that your work would be done in us by the power of your Holy Spirit, Lord, that you would preach a better sermon than I ever could deeply, individually, in, in, in us, in our community, that we would uh, draw closer to you, be more like Christ, be more faithful to him. We pray this in his name, amen. So why is it so hard to be the church? And sometimes our stomachs are sickened by blatant hypocrisy of people in churches that claim to belong to Jesus Even recently, I know some of us have grieved the severe ethical failures of leaders we had appreciated and learned from. Why is it so hard to be the church? Why do so many churches seem to teach things that simply aren't true to the Bible? Why do so many churches never seem to teach things that are? My family and I recently stumbled on supposedly a Christian television show one afternoon And for all of us, it was like watching a car accident in slow motion. Our our faces were contorted as we pondered, what is this stuff being proclaimed as Christianity? We talked about it together afterwards, and one thing we realized, if this is what people think Christianity is, no wonder they reject it. Why is it so hard to be the church? Why do churches split? How come we can't see things clearly together? Why, why is there sometimes so much division, bitterness, bitterness among those who claim to be loved and forgiven by Jesus and are told to love and forgive like Jesus? We can sometimes wonder, where's that perfect church? It's mature in Christ. It's making crowds of new disciples where people are close and growing, serving the needy, spreading the gospel, changing the world. Then we look at our own lives. Why is it so hard for us to be Christians? Why is Christian character and faithfulness so hard for me sometimes? It is hard to be the church. And by the way, the Bible is, uh, itself is no stranger to this issue. The Bible tells us there will be problems like these. And they should be a sorrow, but they're not really a surprise. So there's a few important things to remember when we ask a question like this. Why is it so hard to be the church? Why does the church look the way it does so often? There's a few things to take into account. Uh, one is, not everyone who claims to be a Christian is one. Um, God's the ultimate judge on that, but we know that's a reality. Second, every real Christian remains a recovering sinner. Real Christians can have some really rough moments. We even know sanctification, that process where we're made to be like Jesus, is progressive. Uh, Happens over time. It won't be completed in fullness until Jesus returns So we need to remember, we don't really see the complete story yet that God is writing in that person's life. But there's a third reason it can be really hard to be the church, and we see that in our text this morning. This third reason is that we have an awful, skillful enemy whose great purpose is the corruption and the destruction of the church. So we're in Revelation 12, and we've hit dead center of the book. 
We discover that the book is structured so that this center of the book reveals the central story of the book. So far, we've been through seven letters to the churches, seven seals, seven trumpets. We've seen they're all looking at the same time and the same things from different perspectives. All looking at this time, we can call the time of tribulation between Jesus' first and second coming. Well, now we enter a new section from chapter 12 to chapter 15. We'll encounter these signs and seven visions. It's more of the same. It's, it's deeper perspective on this time of tribulation in which we live. So this morning in chapter 12, we have two signs as part of this fascinating story that reads a bit like a fairy tale. In this story, there's this glorious woman pursued by a terrible dragon who wants to eat her children. And though she's powerless on her own against all odds, she's somehow saved. So what does this story mean? Who is this woman? What's the dragon all about? And we ask, what does it have to do with us? And I think, I think we'll find that this central story here shows us at a deeper level part of the why. Why things are the way they are. And I think we'll find even that this story is our story. It's the fairy tale that's actually true, and it's the story we're living in. And the story helps us know ourselves, our situation, and how we ought to live today in response to the reality of the story. So I want to see five things with you this morning. Number one, I want to see our identity. I want us to see who we are as God's church. Number two, I want us to see our great enemy. We have one. He's still active today. Number three, I want us to see our king and our savior, the one who delivers us. Number four, we need to see our times. What should we expect in these times, in this life? Number five, we need to see our calling. How does this all add up, add up to motivate us to live a certain way? So our identity, our enemy, our king, our times, our calling. First, our identity. Uh, we begin Revelation 12, 1 to 2 with this great sign regarding this woman. And she's radiant. She's beautiful, clothed with the sun, the moon under her feet, and the rest. So who is this? Uh, some Roman Catholic thinkers have wanted to understand this woman as being Mary, the mother of Christ. And we can see why. Um, however, though she may set sort of an example, I think that's actually far too small of an interpretation we remember here, and we've heard this over and over again, if you study Revelation very much, you'll see it's full of symbolism, and that symbolism is from the Old Testament. It's been that way page after page, hasn't it? So in order, in order to understand these symbols in Revelation, we need to see how they're used in the Old Testament. That'll help us make sense of what John is saying. So as we see this woman uh, and, and the reference to the sun and moon and stars, you might remember the story of Joseph. And then we look there and we see this is clearly a reference to Genesis 37. Here's Genesis 37.9. Remember Joseph's dream? Genesis 37.9. Then Joseph dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I've dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and the 11 stars were bowing down to me. So certainly in one sense, this dream is about the story God's going to write to save his people from famine and all the rest. But for our point right now, we see that the sun, the moon, and the 11 stars, they're very clearly Jacob, his wife, 
his 11 sons, the 12th being Joseph. So then we see here, these symbols then represent the beauty of God's covenant people. These are the people God has promised to save for himself. These are the people God has promised to bring his salvation through. That helps us understand this woman. We're thinking, hey, this is God's covenant people. A little more. Let's look ahead and we'll think a little bit about this dragon. So in Revelation 12, 9, we have one of these times where Revelation is very helpful in explaining its own symbolism. Revelation 12, 9, the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who's called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. So we're told here clearly, uh, we know who the dragon is. It's the devil. He's also referenced as that ancient serpent. Well, what does that make you think of? A snake? A woman? Well, that takes us back to Genesis 3, doesn't it? Uh, we come to this core storyline of the entire Bible. Um, God made Adam and, Eve and Adam and Eve good in his image to represent him on earth. Uh, Satan has come and tempted Eve and succeeded, and she and Adam believed the lie. God's not good. His word's not true. Let's replace him, Satan's lie, and they sinned, and they fell, and they fell into death of every kind, and we fell with them. But even there in Genesis 3, right after the fall into sin, there's this promise of grace and salvation. Listen to how it's described. Genesis 3, 15. In God's judgment on Satan, this is what he says. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring, and he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. So the whole storyline of the Bible is, is given to us in this strange imagery of snake people and woman people. So snake people are those who believe the lie of the serpent. That lie, God's not good, his word's not true. Replace him. Women people are those who are rescued from that lie through faith in God's promises. And from that people group, those, that, those faithful covenant people, God here promises one who's going to come and crush the head of the snake. And so we come to this amazing realization. The dragon knows what the child of the woman will do. The dragon knows this child will crush his head. So that's another clue for us. How are we supposed to understand the woman of this story? Well, it represents God's covenant people, the ones he will save, the ones through whom he will bring salvation. One more clue for us in Revelation 12, 17. Here we see that this woman signifies more than just God's faithful people in the Old Testament before Christ. Revelation 12, 17. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. So we see in a way her children are the church people who love and trust and live for Jesus. So I think all this comes together to make it clear this woman represents all of God's covenant people, those whom he has promised to save. So what then is amazing about this story to me 
is that it shows us ourselves from God's point of view. Who are we? We're radiant. We're beautiful. We're beloved. And we can ask, how can this be? I mean, the way we, we started this sermon was thinking about how ugly church can be sometimes, how, how, um, how awful we can seem. We can ask God, are, are you even looking at the same people we're looking at? How can we be this radiant? But friends, you've got to remember that our salvation is based on the reality that God the Father sees us through the lens of the beauty of his son, the righteousness of his son. Did you notice that this woman, she's clothed with the son? In Revelation itself, it tells us again and again, Jesus' face shines like the sun. This is a woman clothed in the glory of Christ. And we remember Ephesians 5. Why are husbands supposed to love their wives and give themselves up for her? And we see it's because Christ, that's what he's done for his people. And his intent is to make her holy and blameless and beautiful. Even Revelation 21 ends with this vision. Look at Revelation 21.1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. The sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. There we are, the people of God, beautiful, radiant, ready to meet the ultimate husband, the Lord Jesus. So we want to pause here and just realize If you've trusted yourself to Christ, we, the covenant people, despite all our flaws, God knows those who are his, and we are beautiful to him in Christ. Do you see the woman wearing the crown? We're going to inherit his kingdom. It's so hopeful to realize God is not going to give up on us. He's he's not going to quit his project halfway through. Despite all the trials and difficulties, bruises, we're beautiful to him because we're in Christ. That's our identity, the bride of Christ, the children of God, the people of God, the temple of God. We're beautiful in Christ. Now we want to think of our enemy. Uh, We see this, another sign begins in verse 3. A great red dragon, seven heads, ten horns on his heads, seven diadems. What are we supposed to do with this? Well, we've seen already, this is a picture of Satan. This great, powerful, personal, fallen angel. He's red, we know from Revelation, that signifies violence and destruction. In chapter 9, he's called the destroyer. That's what he's about. That's what he wants to do. He wants to destroy what God has done, destroy what God has made. And these heads, these horns, these crowns, they may symbolize how he works through empires like Rome. But I think we see a little more than that as well. It's a powerful but counterfeit wisdom in those heads. It's a powerful but counterfeit influence in those horns. It's a powerful but counterfeit authority in those crowns. The reason I say powerful, well, he's, he's reigning on earth. He's causing destruction. The reason I say counterfeit is because, remember, it's Christ who really has the horns of power, who really wears the crowns as king of kings. Satan is a counterfeit. 
He's a counterfeit. So he's a counterfeit wisdom, influence, and authority that wants to destroy. What does this sweeping of the stars mean? I think many of us are probably used to assuming this means that when Satan fell, he took a third of the angels with him. On second glance, I'm not so sure, and here's why. It's because this is so clearly, it seems, a reference to Daniel chapter 8. So I'll read Daniel 8, verses 9 and 10 to you. Uh, In Daniel's vision, uh, chapter 8, verse 9, there came a little horn which grew exceedingly great towards the south, towards the east, and towards the glorious land. It grew great even to the host of heaven, and some of the hosts and some of the stars it threw down to the ground and trampled on them. So it seems clear in that context, in Daniel, stars represent God's people. This is God's view of his people. We even have this here in Revelation 12. And then we, we have this horn representing evil powers that want to attack and destroy God's people. And of course, the devil is the ultimate example of that. So what we're seeing here is his hatred and aggression towards God's church. Of course, we see that later in the story. Um, He's after the woman to eat her child. He knows it's coming. We know even from the Gospels, right? As Jesus was born, King Herod tried to kill uh, Jesus. He went and killed all the children of the village. Um, We see through Jesus' life, Satan was constantly tempting Jesus, even motivated the betrayal to the cross. And we know from Ephesians 6, Satan is constantly making war on us. Here's what Paul said, Ephesians 6, 11 to 12. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So where have we been so far? Our identity. Who's the woman? It's God's beloved people. Beautiful in Christ. That's who we are. Who's our enemy? The dragon represents Satan. A powerful, influential influential enemy who hates God's people and whose mission is to destroy. So just like this, uh, here we have this fairy tale, the true fairy tale, this radiant woman attacked by this massive, powerful dragon. She has no strength on her own, no hope uh, in her own abilities. She cannot fight this evil enemy, but she has this child in this story. Who's the child? Well, we ought to know. Look, verse 5, she gave birth to a male child, one who's to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. Her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And so we have here the story of the Lord Jesus just summarized in one line. This passage, again, is a reference to Psalm 2. We covered that last week. You remember Psalm 2 is this promise that God has his king who will reign forever. And we know God's king is Jesus. Surprisingly, Jesus came humbly as a servant. The eternal son of God took on flesh and was born in humility and poverty He had no armies, no political power. He suffered temptation. He even suffered death on a cross. Satan was after him the entire way. But in that substitutionary death on the cross, Jesus was victorious 
and rose from the dead. He was vindicated by the Father. He ascended to heaven and now reigns from the throne of God. And as Revelation shows us, Jesus has been in control of every single thing that's going on. Every seal opened, every trumpet blown. Jesus is king. And so we see here that despite all of Satan's rage and all of his power, he's thwarted. He does not and cannot accomplish his goal. And so in the story, as Jesus ascends and resurrected victory to heaven, uh, we see that war arises. Michael, this great angel we've heard of from the book of Daniel, he fights and struggles against Satan and defeats him. And there's so much we could wonder about there, isn't it? Uh, this, this war in the heavenlies. But really what we're shown is this victory over Satan is a result of Jesus' resurrection and ascension into heaven. We see here that this battle between Michael and the devil is won because Jesus has won the war through his cross. Look what happens as a result of Jesus' victory on the cross. Revelation 12, 9, that great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent thrown down to earth. Then you continue Revelation 12, 10. I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now is the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. You see this a couple of places in the Old Testament. You see it here. What was Satan's main thing here against God's people? Did you hear the main way he attacks? He accuses. He accuses. And we see here Satan is truly evil, isn't he? First, he tempts you to sin. He makes it look so good. He promises you happiness and satisfaction and autonomy and independence. He makes God look uh, like the worst option ever. You'll be so satisfied and happy in your rebellion. And then as soon as you bite the hook, as soon as you take the fall, Satan starts to trample you while you're down. And he accuses you for doing something he tempted you to do. And his accusation is valid. You're guilty. We're guilty. We deserve wrath. We're not holy. We're not right in ourselves. But this text is showing us again that through the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ in our place, Satan has lost his voice. On the cross, as Jesus' heel was bruised, truly, Satan's head was crushed. Listen to what Colossians 2 says. Paul writing in Colossians 2. Colossians 2.13. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him. That's the Lord Jesus having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. And he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. 
See, think of this record of debt you owed and how Satan could accuse you. Look, look at what he did. Look at what she did. Look at what she thought, what she said. Look, she's a, she's a rebel, worthy of just wrath. And God has taken that record of debt and nailed it to the cross of Jesus Christ. Jesus took that debt in our place. He paid the price. And as he rose from the dead, all the rulers and authorities were disarmed, put to open shame. Jesus Jesus triumphed over them for us. So the woman, God's beloved people, radiant in Jesus Christ, the dragon, Satan, who powerfully deceives and destroys in his counterfeit authority, the child, our king, our savior, the Lord Jesus, who has fundamentally defeated Satan for us through his cross and his resurrection. Now our times, our times. This story, like, so much of Revelation wants to tell us again about our times. It wants to help us with our expectations. So we see this idea in verse 6. The woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. If you try to take that literally, it's going to be difficult. It's going to be hard to figure out. But as we understand the symbolism, we see, oh, this makes sense. This makes sense. Um, we looked at this, uh, these numbers in more detail two weeks ago in our message on the beginning of chapter 11. There's this theme that begins in the book of Daniel where three and a half years signifies a time of suffering and tribulation for God's people. So when you hear 1260 days, 42 months, time, time, and half, time, times, and half a time, it's all the same thing. It's different ways of looking at that same time. The three and a half years symbolize the time of tribulation. And so back in chapter 11, we saw this idea that God's people are both spiritually secure in this time of tribulation, but also physically vulnerable. So we saw in a way God's temple is measured. That means God knows us. He preserves us. He keeps us. Nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. And yet part of that, tr- that temple uh, in chapter 11 is trampled. We'll experience trial, difficulty, suffering. And so we see in this time, God doesn't promise to keep us from suffering. He promises to keep us through suffering. It's the same idea we have here in this theme of the wilderness. The woman, again, represents God's covenant people. She's taken to the wilderness. And it reminds us, doesn't it, of of Exodus. God rescues his people by grace and his power from Egypt. But before they make it to the promised land, they're in this place of the wilderness where, yes, he's going to keep and preserve them. And it's going to be difficult. It's going to be hard. And so you see these ideas, verses 13 to, to 14, He pursues the woman. She's given the two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness where she's going to be nourished for how long? Well, three and a half years, the time of tribulation, that time between Christ's first and second coming. So what's going on with the wings of the eagles? Again, that's a a reference to the Old Testament. Listen to how God speaks to his people in Exodus 19. 
You yourselves, Exodus 19.4, have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. So it's the idea of God carrying his people, caring for his people, keeping his people. So what, how does this relate to our times? Well, this three and a half years in the wilderness, that is a picture of our times. We belong to the Lord. He's with us. He carries us as if on his wings. He nourishes us. But we're not home yet. This is the wilderness before the promised land. And we remain vulnerable to suffering, to tribulation, to hardship. And we have a great enemy. Back up to Revelation 12, 12. There, the shout is, rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows his time is short. So here we have this little window into the mindset of Satan. He knows judgment in hell is around the corner. And so he's going to bring as much deception and destruction as he possibly can. And in many ways, we stand right at the brink of that. We receive the brunt of that. So here's a picture of this again in the story, verses 15 to 16. The serpent pursues the woman. Satan's pursuing God's people, pours water like a river out of his mouth and after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. But the earth came to help the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. Whoa, what does that mean? I think you'll notice, if, if you think about it, as we've been through Revelation, how, how often mouths are emphasized, continually emphasized. And the reason for this, we see it in the letters to the churches. It's because what you believe and what you teach is so important. It's so important. And the main way Satan destroys is by deceiving. It's by deceiving. Isn't that how it began, Genesis 3? He doesn't come in setting the garden on fire. He comes in deceiving. Isn't this how the churches can be corrupted and ruined by believing lies? Isn't, isn't this a core of, of who we are and, and how we live and why we live the way we live, what we believe most deeply what we love the most. And so we see a core attack from Satan is going to be false teaching. It's going to be a false gospel. It's going to be ideas that rebel against the authority of God's word. This theme is all over uh, the letters to the churches at the beginning of Revelation. It's all over the works of First and Second John written by the same author, Here's an example from Paul in Romans 16. Look at Romans 16, verses 70 to 20. Paul writes, I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ with their own appetites and by smooth talk, and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. 
For your own obedience is known to all so that I rejoice over you, but I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. Now look at verse 20. The God of peace will soon crush who? Satan under your feet. Satan attacks God's church primarily through false teaching and the false gospels and the division it brings. But we are promised in Romans 16, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under our feet. And in the story back in Revelation, we see that even as Satan is pouring out this false teaching, the earth swallows it up. And you're thinking, well, what are we supposed to do with that? Well, I'll just ask you again, what do we do with it when we get a symbol that's hard to understand in Revelation? We go back to the Old Testament. We see where it's found there. And in the book of Numbers, there's a false teacher who accuses Moses, comes against him. And in Numbers 16, that false teacher is literally swallowed up by the earth. And so what we have here is just another picture of Satan ultimately being thwarted. None of his deepest plans actually succeed in the end. He's after the Messiah. He can't conquer him. He's after God's people. But God's people will be preserved. God will keep his people for himself. I just want you to be encouraged here. If you love the gospel and you're clinging to that, salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. If you treasure the beauty of who Jesus is, is the eternal son of God who took on flesh, fulfilled all of God's promises to save us. If you want to live for the glory of God according to his word, no matter what pressure the world is putting on you, you've got to see God is preserving you. He's carrying you uh, as if you are on the wings of an eagle. He's holding you for himself. So all of this teaches us about our times. We're in this age of tribulation. We're going to face difficulty, temptation, opposition. But we're going to be preserved. Even though we're vulnerable to suffering, God's going to keep his people, even nourish us in the wilderness. So our identity, we're God's beloved people reigning in Christ, our enemy, Satan, out to destroy with persecution, with deception. The child, our king, our savior, the Lord Jesus, who has won the ultimate victory and reigns now. Our times, the age of tribulation, that all leads us to our calling. God is trying to tell us, right, through John, through this book, our true story. This is who we are. This is what's occurring. So how should we live? There's two pictures of this, verse 11 and verse 17. You see in verse 11, they, God's people, have conquered him, Satan, by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even unto death. It's this ironic picture of a gospel-centered life. The cross before the crown. We will conquer Satan. And we do even now conquer Satan. How do we do it? Number one, we trust the gospel. 
Notice we have conquered him by the blood of the lamb. We have conquered him because of somebody else's victory. Jesus died for us. He loves us. He rose for us. He reigns for us. Look to the gospel. That's the ultimate defeat of Satan and everything he's after. Trust the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you're not a Christian, you're listening in right now, you're pondering these things, I'd love to communicate with you about any doubts or questions you might have, but also to invite you. Jesus has sent his, the gospel of who he is and what he's done all over the world, and everyone is invited to repent of their sin and trust in him, knowing that the victory he's won, it can be yours. It belongs to those who trust in him. So conquer by the blood of the lamb. Second, we conquer by the word of our testimony. What does that mean? If I was going to sum it up, it would mean lives and mouths of gospel-centered biblical integrity. The word of our testimony. So it's, it's how we live. It's how we show Jesus to the world. As we, as we, knowing we're saved by Christ, we want to honor him in how we live with biblical integrity, clinging to his words. Also, it's the word we speak, that we would cling to the truth of who Jesus is, of what he's done, that we would cling to the reality, that we would stand on the true, the real gospel, the knowledge that Jesus is Lord, the only way to the Father. The Bible is his word. We're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. To hold to that, to proclaim it. So we, we defeat him by trusting the gospel. We defeat him with faithful word and testimony. And number three, we conquer through enduring devotion. Enduring devotion. Love not their lives, even unto death. What would, you, what would you die for? There's a lot of things I wouldn't die for. But even as I ask that question, really a better question is, what would you die early for? Because I guess there's this, I mean, I'm no prophet, but you're all going to die, right? <laughs> We're all going to die. That actually helps to know that. It's not like die or not die. No, you're, you're going to die. What would you die early for? What would you trade a few extra years of living for? I bet there's something. I hope it's this thing. That we'd be willing to die early for faithfulness to Christ. Faithfulness to him. Faithfulness to the reality of who he is, the message of the gospel. Faithfulness to his word. Faithfulness to what he has described as being the kind of life that honors him and glorifies him. Listen, the apparent church is going to be full, right, of all sorts of screwy teaching. That's what this text shows us. That's what our experience shows us. We've got to be willing to stand on a gospel-centered faithfulness to God's word. Revelation 12, 17, the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus and are willing to die early for it if necessary. That's how we conquer. And we can do it because we know we are God's radiant bride. 
We are his beloved people. We, Jesus has overcome our enemy. Uh, he carries us now and keeps us through these difficult times and will one day bring us to himself. In fact, he will return, renew the world. All will be well. So, it's going to be hard to be faithful Christians. It is hard to be a faithful church. We're sinners. And we have a great enemy. But we can overcome him because of the victory our Lord has already won for us. So let's remember who we are in Christ. We're loved, we're beloved, we're radiant, we're treasured. We belong to God through Christ. Let's remember the victory our king has accomplished. Satan's head has been as it's, it's good as crushed. He's lost. His vocal cords are removed. He can no longer accuse. We've been saved by our Lord. Let's remember the reality of our times. It will be tough. There will be persecution sometimes. There will be attacks. There will be attempts to deceive. But we, we fly on the wings of the power of our God and keeping us for himself. We rely on Jesus Christ, on the Holy Spirit he's given us. So then let's remember our calling. Let's overcome as we cling to the gospel, as we strive to be faithful in what we believe and say and how we live, and as we're willing to even die early for that if necessary, because Jesus is worth it, and he's faithful, and he will get us through the wilderness to the promised land. That's our story. It's the true story. Let's pray. Our God, we thank you for the reminders of how you see us, that we're beloved to you. We're radiant to you. Uh, we look at ourselves functionally, practically, and, and wonder how you can see us that way, but then we remember you see us through the lens of Jesus Christ. You see us justified. You see us made holy in him. You see his righteousness imputed to us. Oh, Lord, uh, let us be so encouraged by the reality that the accuser is lost, that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. And let us then long to live faithfully for you, even in difficult times, that we would be able to trust that you are with us, you nourish us, you keep us, not from all suffering, but through all suffering. And we pray that we could overcome as we trust the gospel, as be because of the gospel, we live faithfully for, to you. And we pray that it would just be our great delight so that um, you would be most beautiful of all to us. And that we would be willing, if necessary, even to die early for your sake, knowing that we'll live forever. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. And we invite you to visit us Sunday mornings here at Fountain of Life Fellowship. For more information, visit www.folfcrc.com.